Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. The beginning of November has an odd coincidence. On the one hand, it is typically the climax of the political season with national, state, and local elections that will decide the shape of the country. On the other hand, it is also the epicenter of America's sporting calendar. The World Series is often entering its final games. NFL and NCAA football teams are entering the make-or-break period of their seasons. The NBA has its first tip-offs. Virtually every major sports league has some stake in November. Of course, sports and politics are not only related through a coincidence of the calendar— Whether it is NASCAR fans chanting, let's go Brandon, as a slur against the president, or NFL players taking a knee to protest police brutality against citizens of color, politics is everywhere in sports. And this is nothing new. I'm Kendall Phillips, and on this episode of Pop Life, we'll explore the complex interconnections of sports, politics, and popular culture. Here to help us in our efforts is Dr. Abraham Kahn. Dr. Kahn is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Arkansas, He specializes in popular culture, sports, and racial politics. He is the author of numerous academic essays and the book, Kurt Flood in the Media, Baseball, Race, and the Demise of the Activist Athlete. Abe, welcome to Pop Life. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. No, thrilled to have you. So thinking about your work, you know, often I hear now people sort of grumble, I wish politics would get out of sports. Like, I don't want sports and I don't want politics in my sports. Mm. And yet it does seem like the history of sports is full of politics. Can you talk to us a little about this kind of long standing relationship between sports and politics and popular culture? Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that uh, if you had, I don't know, if, if I was talking to you 10 or 12 years ago, um, you actually might have posed the question in the reverse. In other words, you would have heard lots of people saying, God, I wish there was some, some politics in my sports. Athletes have become completely apolitical. What happened to this grand <laughs> tradition of athletes speaking truth to power? Um, and so, uh, you know, there certainly is a long history, um, but there was also uh, a period of decline, uh, which is a point that I tried to make in my, in my book about Kurt Flood. But, you know, the, the origin of athletes um, engaging in, in politics it's, it's difficult to really sort of place the origin. You could, you could probably start with uh, Jack Johnson winning the world heavyweight title in 1908, um, although he wasn't much of, a, much of an activist, but he was certainly a political flashpoint, um, especially around uh, race politics in the U.S. Then there was Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals right in front of Hitler's eyes in 1936. There was uh, uh, Jackie Robinson breaking, breaking baseball's color line in 1947, which is a fascinating political moment. And I hope we, we get a, a quick chance to talk about actually Jackie Robinson in 1949. That was the year that he won the National League MVP, but it was also the year that he broke his two years of silence that he had promised to Branch Rickey um, prior mm-hmm. to being signed to the Dodgers. And then, of course, there were the events of the mid to late 1960s. And there was, you know, there, uh, it's, it's a time when Muhammad Ali refused to go to Vietnam um, and was both loud and poetic in his refusal to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There was John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising their fists 
at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, uh, which I, I mean, I'm, my guess is that most of most of the listeners have seen that photograph. And I would at least argue that it's among the most uh, among the most famous photographs in American history, not just the just the history of sports. There was, you know, the way that Kurt Fludge challenged baseball in in 1970. The Kareem Abdul-Jabbar became an activist in this era. Not long after, I think it was 1972 or 1973, I'm forgetting my my uh, my dates here, but uh, Billie Jean King participated at the bout, uh, in the Battle of the Sexes against um, Bobby Riggs at the Houston Astrodome, uh, and that certainly uh, was a was a spectacular moment for gender politics in the U.S. But you know, all along the way, you know, and I highlight black athletes and I highlight female athletes in particular because of the way that the politics sports relationship has typically been understood through the problem of identity and inclusion and national belonging. There have been, I think, a variety of different ways to track the way that um, to track the way that the different athletes have tried to um, make the argument for inclusion or national belonging or, you know, I mean, you know, Ali was uh, was an internationalist who in many ways brought uh, uh, post-colonial discourses into the um, into the politics of sport. Um, uh, someone like Jackie Robinson, um, you know, was he broke baseball's color line just after World War II, and so was sort of deeply involved in the in the Cold War era. And so his argument was much different than than Muhammad Ali's or <laughs> or uh, or Carlos and Smith's were. Um, and then there was sort of a period of forty-year decline, and there were a bunch of reasons why. You know, there there are a number of a number of reasons that we can point to for account to account for that decline. But I think the one that's most frequently pointed to um, by most media commentators is the rise in athlete salaries. The fact that this is a, a moment in American history around 1975 when athletes really started to get rich, sure. uh, which made them somewhat reluctant or adverse to political controversy, especially in the way that political controversy might interfere with endorsement contracts. Um, and then in 2012, uh, after Trayvon Martin was murdered in Florida, the LeBron James and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade and the rest of, Mi of the Miami Heat posed in hoodies um, in order to draw attention to the fact that, that Martin was killed in an, in an unjust fashion. And that sort of set off a chain of events, I think. Um, there were a few athletes here and there uh, between, let's say, 1972, 1973, and 2012, but they were kind of few and far between. They tended to, to be on an island. I'm thinking of Carlos Delgado, the baseball player who refused to sort of perform the national anthem in a ceremonial fashion, or Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, uh, who was a basketball player for the Denver Nuggets, and he also, uh, he sort of, instead of uh, standing for the anthem, he posed in Muslim prayer to sort of oppose American imperialism. But after 2012, you know, after 2012, you got Colin Kaepernick, you got the WNBA really becoming kind of a cauldron for what contemporary sports activism would look like. And then in my mind, the two most significant events were uh, when the University of Missouri football team um, refused to play or they announced that they would refuse to play mm -hmm. until the university had um, made some administrative changes and done some things to recruit and re retain black students and faculty. Um, and then when the Milwaukee Bucks uh, led uh, an entire r r wave of all across sports of athletes just 
walking out of, they walked off the job because they didn't want to play under conditions that were defined by extreme and highly visible instances of anti-black violence. So, I mean, the, the, the history is there, and I'm happy to talk about any one of those, any one of those moments, but, but certainly it's been sort of a, uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, uh, sort of an ebb and flow of athletes entering politics, exiting politics, and making all sorts of different demands, both in the United States and abroad for racial justice, gender justice, um, and kind of anti-colonial justice. No, that's an incredibly valuable overview. So thank you for that uh, history lesson. I think we've we got a, a, a lot of it in a nutshell, but I want to kind of roll back and, and sure. sort of look at some of those punctuation points. And so it okay. seems like, and even from your recounting here, it, it seems that many of those early kind of political athlete figures were political largely just by their embodied presence. So Jack Johnson as as the first, mm-hmm. you know, African American black man to win the heavyweight championship, his physical presence creates politics. Same with Jesse Owens at the Olympics. Right. It is his embodied presence. And is it that 1949 moment with Jackie Robinson deciding now to speak out? Is that a one of those punctuation points where it's not just the athlete physically being there being a kind of political statement, but now the athlete actively kind of promoting a political agenda or, or speaking back to yeah. relations of power. Yeah. In many ways, Jackie Robinson helps to crystallize um, the, a variety of different forms of being an activist athlete, because like you said, there was the embodied presence of Jack Johnson. I think that Jesse Owens was probably a bit more uh, self-aware mm. um, of, of what his accomplishments meant in a broader sort of global political context um, that he's, he's often given credit for. But, but Jackie Robinson, right, I mean, it's, it, the, Jackie Robinson's kind of definitive biographer is a man named Jules Tygeel, who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, but Tygeel wrote a book in the early 80s called Baseball's Great Experiment. And since that book, really, the, the way that, that Jackie Robinson integrating Major, Major League Baseball has been described is as... Um, as, as a kind of project, right? A very sort of carefully curated, staged uh, project. Um, and it was not just, a, not just, obviously not just Jackie Robinson's project, it was a collaboration between Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey uh, in order to change the face of the national pastime. And so it, there was, so Jackie Robinson certainly, um, you know, sort of, uh, what's the best way to put it? Jackie Robinson's embodied presence did in fact become politicized. But then there was also the fact that Robinson was well aware um, of how he fit into uh, emerging forms of black politics in the in the 1940s, in the immediate post-war era. And so, you know, Branch Rickey sort of famously told Robinson that in order for it to get in order for it to work, in order for the project to work, he was going to have to stay silent for two years uh, and essentially play his way into acceptance, right? Use his uh, use the spectacle of black excellence to make the case undeniable um, for for black athletes in Major League Baseball. And so he did that. But the moment in which he chose to break, break his silence was sort of a curious one, because this is uh, this is when the Red Scare uh, is in. I don't know. It's in sort of full flower. <laughs> and uh, the House and American Activities Committee is interrogating pretty much anyone they can get their hands on. Uh, and in 1949, Paul Robeson, the singer, actor, ex-football player, and, of course, well-known communist, was at a peace conference in Paris, 
And someone, some, some member, a mem- someone in the press quoted him as saying, and the reason I put it that way is because there's differing accounts as to whether or not this actually happened. <laughs> uh, but he was quoted in the press as having, as having said that, uh, no, quote unquote, no American Negro worth, worth his salt would fight in a war uh, against the Soviet Union were one to come to pass. And uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee, of course, saw this as an opportunity to connect um, the emerging civil rights movement in the late 1940s to communism, which, you know, of course, num- a, number of, of, uh, a number of civil rights leaders and civil rights activists in the late 1940s were, were petrified of that connection. And so HUAC invited Jackie Robinson to come and kind of disavow. Uh, Robeson's claim, and he did, and he and he did it in a kind of, in an almost a surprisingly vicious fashion, um, and and of course the the you know the New York Times ran with it, Congress ran with it, uh, everybody loved the fact that uh, that Robinson's claim to uh, desegregation um, was grounded in an explicit form in, a, in an explicit form of anti-communism. And so what's interesting about Jackie Robinson, for me, I think the fact that this is, this is also a moment where really sort of left-wing radical politics get written out of the civil rights movement. Hmm. Uh, but it's also interesting, I think, to, to pay attention to that moment with Jackie Robinson, because he wasn't simply, you know, he wasn't simply an embodied presence. He was making a case. He had an affirmative argument that he made in front of Congress for racial integration. And of course, it had everything to do with the post or the early Cold War politics of the time. So does that open the door for those more, uh, I guess, vocal activist athletes who will become increasingly prominent throughout the 60s? And obviously, the 60s is a very different time than the 50s. Uh, But is that, you know, is Robinson kind of stepping out and becoming a, a kind of political agent, a very, you know, very uh, articulate political agent, really speaking an agenda right. out into the world. Is that part of what opens the door for later folks who are going to be a little more challenging to uh, the American way and, and American government? I think that that's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, and certainly the fact that, you know, Jackie Robinson never stopped being political. By the time he get, I think Robinson retired in 1955, 1956, something like that. Um, and then he started writing columns. Right, um, right. In the in in black newspapers, uh, the the columns that I reviewed uh, appeared in the New York Amsterdam News, um, and and they appeared all throughout the 1960s. And so you can view Jackie Robinson as kind of the entry point into into black athletes being more explicitly political. But it was also, I think, in many ways, uh, dissatisfaction with a Jackie Robinson style politics that helped to generate, for example. Um, the civil rights turns the civil rights movements turned to black power in the in the late 1960s. There was also the formation of the Black Panthers in the Bay Area in, in, in California in 1966, I think. And the idea was that that you know black athletes had at this point had had started to had become sort of not fully integrated, but had started to integrate institutions, not just professional. Uh, athletic organizations like the like Major League Baseball, the National Football League, but also universities. And just as the new left kind of grows out of student movements, um, I think that the way that that black athletes had started to radicalize in the late 1960s was kind of an outgrowth. It's two things. One is their direct experience, right? They are the ones integrating campuses. 
and they are also mistreated on those integrated campuses. And so John Carlos and Tommy Smith were both athletes for San Jose State University, which at the time was an almost exclusively white university, except for the very small handful of athletes that were there. Hmm. And they experienced ostracism and mistreatment and, and everything else, right? So they're, 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 they're feeling it. But also, this is the Bay Area of California in 1967, 1968. <laughs> right. uh, the Panthers are formed in the Bay Area, and there's a lot of black radicalism going around. Um, and they are, so they're experiencing a form of mistreatment, and then they're connecting that to a kind of ambient discourse of emerging black power. And so there's sort of a time, I think this is a moment where their, their courage and their, um, their, their boldness is cultivated by cultures of activism that are, that are emerging around them. And I, and I also think that, it, like I said, it's, it's kind of a direct rejection of the of the of the African American politics that was expressed by Jackie Robinson, where integration was the end game, and right. for for folks like Carlos and Smith and Muhammad Ali, integration didn't seem to be all it was cracked up to be. And so, as the language of civil rights moves from integration to a broader and more international sense of social justice, enter right people like John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Muhammad Ali who are speaking, I think, a much more radical language um, than was once embodied by Jackie Robinson. Meanwhile, he's still speaking the integration narrative sure. uh, in, in the 1960s. And by the time you get to the late 1960s, Jackie Robinson is seen as increasingly out of touch. So it's kind of that respectability politics people talk about as yes. part of the early civil rights movement. Absolutely. So in that rejection yeah. of respectability politics, it seems to me, and again, I'll, I'll, you're the expert here, but Muhammad Ali seems to be the person who is both very radical, uh, has a very, very different global agenda, and, and in some ways also right. is the person who pays a pretty heavy price for that political yeah. activism. Is, is that your read as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jackie, or, um, I'm sorry, Muhammad Ali paid arguably the heaviest price of all. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm partial to Kurt Flood as we start, um, <laughs> as we start evaluating the price that, that was paid by, by a number of different athletes. But uh, Muhammad Ali uh, couldn't fight between the ages of 25 and 28, which is basically for every professional athlete, professional male athletes, the prime of their career, right? It's the center cut of their career. And he essentially went into athletic exile as a heavyweight champion, um, as the, and as the, you know, the, the most famous person on earth. Um, and you know, doesn't, doesn't get to fight again until 1970. And, you know, the, yeah, he, he, he pretty much, I mean, now he would get his title back. Right. Um, but the, the cost in the meantime was, was pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, he was, he was broke, you know, I mean, you know, prize fighting is lucrative, but it's not lucrative enough to survive three years of unemployment. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and certainly Ali also is a, is a, is an ideal example of the rejection of 1940s, 1950s style, um, respectability politics. I mean, you know, the thing to me that makes Ali so, so Ali was, Ali's charisma was simply unmatched, unmatched in, in American history. Um, I mean, you know, there, there are plenty of charismatic athletes um, in the present. Certainly LeBron James is one of them. Someone like Richard Sherman um, is incredibly charismatic. Um, but none with the kind of really self-aware kind of um, artistry 
of of Muhammad Ali. I know that ESPN ran a documentary, I think, uh, I don't know, it, it, I want to say very recently, but it feels very old now, uh, <laughs> called uh, Ali Rap. Um, and the argument essentially is that um, is that hip hop music, rap music, is uh, is an outgrowth of the way that Ali was able to kind of spin rhymes, right, drop rhymes on a on a global stage um, in the in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and so that charisma um, was pretty difficult to right. No one no one no one really compares uh, on the charisma scale when it comes to Muhammad Ali. Um, which is quite different, right, than Jackie Robinson basically staying utterly silent for two for two years. But then there was also the I think the the sense of very deliberate black pride that Muhammad Ali expressed. I mean, Muhammad Ali said over and over again, he told everybody who would listen how beautiful he was, yes. um, which wasn't just uh, kind of self-flattery. But it was it was, I think, uh, a form of communicating to uh, to black folks around the world that the that the that the definitions of them that had been essentially dominant um, and offered by white society, white elites on a global scale following the long history of transatlantic slavery, um, that that definition was not something that they had to accept. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, that's a, the, the way you put it, Ali, as, an, as a rejection of res- respectability politics, I think there's a variety of ways to, to, um, to discover that formula, but I think that formula is right. No, and certainly a redefinition of respectability that is not uh, told in terms of the kind of dominant white culture. Now, Ali, uh, clearly, I think, still uh, one of the most famous sports figures in history. I think Carlos and Smith, Jackie Robinson, these are names, but as the author of the book on uh, on Kurt Flood. Kurt Flood is one yeah. of those figures that is not, uh, doesn't seem to me at least, talked about in pop culture in the same voice as these other folks. So for listeners who don't know about Kurt Flood or his role in activist uh, athletics, tell us a little bit about Kurt Flood. Yeah, uh, Kurt Flood was, he was from, he's actually, he's from Oakland. He, he grew up in Oakland, California. Uh, and he was, uh, he was a poor black kid from Oakland. And he actually played, but he played on some, uh, kind of some legendary youth teams. I think he, uh, when when he was when he was a youngster, he played baseball with uh, Vada Pinson, um and I want to say Frank Robinson. Um, yeah, I think it was Frank Robinson. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they essentially played baseball in Oakland Sandlots together in the 1950s. And in the late 1950s, he signed a contract to play with the Cincinnati Reds before he ever broke into the majors. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds traded his traded his contract to the St. Louis Cardinals, and so he played. He started in center field for the Cardinals throughout the 1960s. He won uh, the 1964 World Series with the Cardinals. Uh, he won the 1967 World Series with the Cardinals, uh, and then they lost to the the Cardinals lost to the Detroit Tigers in the 1968 World Series. Um, and he had made a, a life for himself. And Flood was a Renaissance man. I mean. He was a painter. He was uh, sort of a a man about town, right? He was he was handsome and dashing, and you know always dressed to the nines, and would be seen at uh, you know all of the kind of society events in St. Louis in the 1960s. And by the time uh, the '69 season, though, was a was a difficult one for the for the St. Louis Cardinals. They finished fourth, which was really disappointing. Um, not only to the fans and to the team itself, but also to the team owner, uh, Gussie Bush. 
And, uh, and so Bush decided he wanted a clean house. And I guess the previous year, uh, Flood had made uh, kind of a, an indecorous demand for a salary raise, and Bush <laughs> didn't like that and sort of, sort of regarded um, Flood as a troublemaker. And so at the end of the 1969 season, um, the Cardinals traded Flood from, the, from, the, from St. Louis to the Philadelphia Phillies. And he had built this entire life in St. Louis. He didn't want to go to Philadelphia. And he didn't want to go to Philadelphia for a couple of reasons. One, of course, was that his, uh, St. Louis was, anything, it was everything he had ever known. And the second is that Philadelphia had a reputation for having some of the most racist fans in baseball. And, he, 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 and the, other, the other thing is that Philadelphia was kind of a – St. Louis was like, the, was like a world-class sports organization. Think of the Dodgers now maybe sure. – um, or the Dallas Cowboys, right? That was the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1960s, as far as a franchise was concerned. Uh, and the Philadelphia Phillies were sort of a, they weren't a small market team, but they were a low budget team. Uh, <laughs> they were cheap. They were not very good. Um, and nobody liked playing there, especially uh, black baseball players. And so he said no. And so he, he wrote this letter to Major League Baseball, the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, and he said, I will not be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I am not a, he said, I'm not a piece of property to be bought or sold irrespective of, of my wishes. And then he filed suit in federal court asking to be what we now call a free agent. There was no such thing as free agency in, uh, at least not in Major League Baseball. The different uh, North American major sports had a very sort of minor versions, minor situations in which, in which athletes could negotiate their right to play for a different team with a new contract. But in Major League Baseball, they had something called the reserve clause. And the idea was um, every time you signed a contract, you signed a contract that gave the club with which you signed a, the con your contract the exclusive rights to sign you the following year. So every contract was a one-year contract, and you could not negotiate wage increases. Your only choice when it came to negotiating wage, wage increases was to just not play. And so Kurt Flood filed a federal, federal lawsuit, and he had two claims in his lawsuit. The first is that baseball was violating uh, antitrust law in restricting his labor movement, that essentially it was a collusive labor restriction. Uh, and the second was that baseball violated the 13th Amendment, which, of course, prohibited uh, involuntary servitude in the U.S. <laughs> uh, and then he went on national TV in front of Howard Cosell. Uh, or in, in front of national TV, in front of the country, Howard Cosell was the interviewer, right. and Cosell said, asked him, he said, uh, Kurt, you're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages. What's your retort to that? And his answer was, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. Wow. And this in many ways outraged the nation. It outraged the nation because baseball was supposed to be our great progressive institution. Baseball had given us Jackie Robinson, <laughs> right. right? Baseball was the marker by which we understood racial progress in the United States. And Kurt Flood goes on TV and says, baseball is slavery. Right? Uh, and so he filed, he filed this lawsuit, and, um, and he lost. He lost in federal court in 1970. He appealed it to the Supreme Court, and he lost in the Supreme Court in 1972. Meanwhile, he is out of baseball. Right? He's done. Um, and he, uh, you know, the, his biographer, uh, Brad Snyder, makes the case that Flood was probably becoming an alcoholic in the late 1960s. Um, and then by the time he fled, he fled to Europe. He, he ran a bar in Majorca 
showing baseball games to expats in Spain uh, in the in the early 1970s and sort of fully de- descended into alcoholism. And he eventually returned to the United States on the, on the State Department's dime. In fact, you can find the, the, the telegram uh, that was sent to Henry Kissinger saying, hey, someone come get your boy. Oh my. Right? Um, and he, he returned to the United States, returned to Oakland with nothing but his dog and, the sh- and his shirt on his back. Wow. Um, and so the, his, his story, his personal story, ends in tragedy. But at the same time, the Major League Baseball Players Association, uh, led at the time by a man named Marvin Miller, um, saw Flood's case as an opportunity. Um, and so the Players Association backed him under certain conditions. Um, and by 1975, Major League Baseball, because, uh, because the Players Association had uh, by this time become a union, Major League Baseball had instituted a system of free agency. And so the fact that, you know, someone like Bryce Harper or Mike Trout or Clayton Kershaw, you know, these, these are guys that have, you know, $300, $400 million contracts, long-term contracts. Those contracts are possible because Kurt Flood um, – had the had the guts to sue Major League Baseball in the early in the early 1970s and sadly paid the price for it. So let's fast forward to today. So now mm-hmm. we have uh, relatively well-paid athletes who have a great deal of negotiating power to decide their conditions of labor, etc. Right. Um, we, we have also had, as, as you pointed out earlier, uh, a variety of political situations, Trayvon Martin, certainly the murder of George Floyd and others, that have called athletes and athletic organizations into politics. Do you feel like the money has enabled them to be more politically active and vocal, or is the money still kind of muting the response? I think it's both, hmm. frankly. Um, and and so the, the the term, I think, that best captures the way that um, the, the, the current moment of athlete activism is the idea of the platform. Um, and of course, the platform, is, the platform is more broadly, I think, uh, uh, a term that is m- more frequently heard in public life only because social media has given kind of everyone a platform, right? I got like 800 Twitter followers. That's my platform, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and I think that, I think that, Social media, the first thing that social media did was it gave athletes the opportunity to speak around the press. Mm. So they didn't have to rely on ESPN. They didn't have to rely on nationally circulating or local newspapers to vet or filter their comments or to contextualize them in, um, in damaging or, you know, kind of softening ways. So that's the that's the thing that happened is that social media allowed athletes a kind of direct um, opportunity to communicate with 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 fans and and other observers. Um, but the problem is, at least in my view, is that the like the the audience that athletes now have is bigger than it's ever been because of the platform. But on the other hand, the scope of what it, what can be said on the platform isn't very. It's, it's not. It's it's narrower, sure. right, than than the than the size of the audience. So it it seems to me that you know the all of the all of the money, not just in not just in media and sports, right. Certainly, athletes athletes can take a hit from one endorser, right, and then cash in with another endorser. Right. Um, it, that wasn't even the case, like when Tiger Woods got in trouble. It wasn't an activist moment. But, you know, when Tiger Woods was involved in 
that infidelity scandal in right, 2009, right. you know, all of his, all of his endorsements or all, all of his, all of his sponsors cut him loose. Um, he got him back, but they cut him loose. Now Tiger Woods is, is a, I think was the world's first ever billion dollar athlete. So he could take that hit without having to worry about it. <laughs> but, um, you know, the money, money does in fact, I think give athletes the opportunity to, to be a, a bit more risky. But on the other hand, you, you, you got to athletes have to be incredibly careful because right, right there's no way for like one of the I think idea or one of the most iconic examples of an athlete using an activist profile to actually make money right is Colin Kaepernick. Now Colin Kaepernick lost his job playing in the NFL. He was black he was blacklisted by by the National Football League. And in my view, the world is a better place if you let Colin Kaepernick play football. But Colin Kaepernick also um, was able to secure a contract with Nike, right? And so he's making Nike commercials, um, and he becomes this sort of global icon for uh, the, the the new the new activist athlete. The problem is, is that you you none of this can be anti corporate speech, sure. right? There's all of this political speech, but none of it is anti corporate. So the platform is big, but what you can say on it is small. Because ultimately, you still want to get out on the field on uh, right. uh, on Sunday night or Monday Monday night, and, and play that game. And so that kind of more radical politics, particularly I guess in team sports, where it is much more corporately governed than say Ali back in the sure. heyday of boxing when you know uh, 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 the world champion was the world champion. You couldn't just immediately uh, ignore them, whereas Colin Kaepernick kind of gets removed from the NFL, although clearly. So where do you see the future? If you can sort of look f- 10 years down the line, do you think we're going to have increasingly activist athletes who are maybe taking up a wide range of causes, or do you think folks are going to be cautious about backlash from endorsers or backlash on social media and keep their messages a bit more muted? I actually think that we've settled into a model for how this process works. Hmm. Now, I don't know what the fate of that model will be uh, as American politics change. Hopefully the fascists don't take over. But as American politics changes, I don't know what the fate of ultimately the model will be. But essentially the model we have now and you know, I want to I want to clarify because it's not simply right that athletes find it very difficult to 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 tell an anti-capitalist or an anti-corporate story. It's also the way that 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 whether it's the leagues or it's advertisers um, or if it's media institutions themselves. In many ways, these are organizations that these are uh, American institutions that get sort of uh, one way to uh, Howard Bryant, the ESPN journalist who wrote a terrific book called The Heritage. Howard Bryant um, calls this greenwashing. Some other folks uh, call it wokewashing. But the idea is that, you know, Kaepernick has this massive platform with Nike. But what does Nike get out of it? What Nike gets out of it is that we don't have to talk about the massive uh, wage discrimination lawsuit that they settled, right? It was a gender-based wage discrimination lawsuit they settled. We don't have, we don't talk about, um, you know, uh, sweatshop labor in Southeast Asia, um, where they make their sneakers and all their other sporting goods equipment and the like, right? Uh, and so that's that's what Nike gets out of it. Uh, one of to me the the kind of the I, uh, there's a, um, a Georgetown uh, philosophy professor named Olafemi Taiwo uh, who talks about elite capture, and Taiwo 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 talks about elite capture sort of in the context of 
uh, like uh, uh, social movements. And he says that throughout, uh, throughout history, there have been sort of some, some folks at the top of the social movement who direct the message to down below, right? So as the social movement evolves, you have leaders in the social movement who essentially try to get the grassroots to adapt um, the, the social movement's message into an elite message. Um, but to me, the, the iconic or the, the platonic form of elite capture is when Jerry Jones decided he was going to, he was the, uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Yes. Jerry Jones is going to kneel with the Cowboys yes. in 2017 as the Cowboy athletes want to take a knee, right? And so I think the model we have now is one where athletes know what they can and can't say. They, right, there is a plenty of political outspokenness, but large corporate institutions have figured out how to kind of piggyback on that energy so that they don't get, right, they don't, they don't incur any financial risks. And so I think the model that we're in now is one where there's lots of, I think, activist speech, but it is a kind of activist speech that's endorsed either by the NCAA or the NFL or by, you know, international governing bodies, you know, whether it's FIFA or Formula One, right? You can do all sorts of stuff, right? But it's stuff that, within, that's in, that fits within the confines of corporate governance. And as long as it fits within uh, the confines of corporate governance, then the athletic institutions, whether it's media, governing bodies themselves, teams, et cetera, they can all make money on it. Uh, I think that's the model that we're in now. Um, I just don't know where, what direction that model is headed given the way that global politics is changing. Well, when that model changes, Abe, we will have you back on Pop Life. You've given us an incredibly rich history and a great lesson on kind of the uh, to and fro of activism and politics and professional sports. Uh, now that we enter our two-minute warning, Abe, as regular listeners know, uh, we have a little game we play with our guests. We call it the Fast Five. So, Abe, I'm going to ask you five somewhat irreverent questions related to sports and ask you to make a tough either-or decision. If you're ready, okay. Abe, we'll begin with question number one. If you could sit in the booth with one famous sports broadcaster during a game, would you choose Bob Costas or Mike Tirico? Bob Costas. That one's easy. Uh, who yeah, was, sure. for you, the greatest Chicago Bear of all time? Would it be Gale Sayers or Walter Payton? Oh, I never saw Gale Sayers play. I did watch. I grew up watching Walter Payton play um, in the Chicago area, and so it's Walter Payton for me. Absolutely. Question number three. If you could go back in time and be in the stands for one of these historic baseball games, would it be October 3rd, 1951 National League pennant game that saw the New York Giants beat the Brooklyn Dodgers with the shot heard around the world? Or mm -hmm. the New York Mets improbable come-from-behind win in the 10th inning against the Boston Red Sox in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series? Which game are you going back in time to watch? The 86 World Series. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're reading my mind. Uh, I actually grew up as a bit of a Mets fan, uh, and it was really just to be annoying to the other kids in school who were all, all big Cubs fans. And the Mets were sort of the Cubs' big rivals uh, in the mid-1980s. And so I grew up as a Mets fan, and I watched that on TV, and I would have loved to be there in the stand. We have a crack research uh, squad here at Pop Life, Abe. We know all about you. So question number four for you. If you could sit down for a conversation with one iconic, groundbreaking sports hero, would it be Muhammad Ali or Jackie Robinson? Oh, that's tough. I think I'd, I'd prefer to be in the presence of Muhammad Ali, but I bet I'd have a better conversation with Jackie Robinson. Only because Ali's, Ali's maybe... Uh, 
there's like too much charisma for Ali. And I'm not sure if I'd be able to penetrate the charisma into a conversation, but I feel like, I, and there's a lot of questions I have for Jackie Robinson that I don't have for Ali. Well, we'll see if we can make that happen. Finally, question number <laughs> five comes down to this. Abe, it is game seven of the World Series. Bottom of the ninth tie ball game. Two outs, no one on. Would you rather be on the mound or up at bat? On the mound. On the mound. I used to throw I used to throw baseballs against my garage. I dented it several times. It made my made my dad pretty upset, actually. But I used to throw baseballs against the garage and that was the the childhood fantasy running through my head was bottom of the ninth, bases loaded team up you got to win the game so on the mound well you have absolutely uh, struck us out here on pop life you've done a fabulous job ah, thank you that. so much abe final question for you what are you loving in your pop life is there something you're watching binging listening to what is on your pop life radar these days yeah i'm a bit of a tv i'm a bit of a, a sucker for tv i watch way more tv than i should uh, which hopefully is not something that comes up the next time I have to go through the tenure process. <laughs> but I, uh, I, uh, Succession is the thing that uh, has been driving me on HBO recently. I've been watching. I, I love Succession. I can't wait for season four of Succession to come out. And then, of course, the other thing um, is we're in football season. So Thursday, Sunday, and Monday, I am glued to my TV watching football. Well, Abe, you have been a grand slam for us here on Pop Life. Thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder to our listeners, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us on social media. We are at Pop Life, W-A-E-R, on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for joining us for this episode, and I will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.